0: Thank you for that very generous introduction, David. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, just building on what was just said by David, I think the National Congress regime in in um, in Sudan and subsequently um, in what may be northern Sudan or, or, or Sudan without the South uh, might find itself in the eye of a perfect storm. And I say this for a few reasons. Uh, the, the first is that it will be ruling a state that was born from a war that, in effect, it has lost. Um, and not only that, just like in 1956, it will be born with uh, this state will be born with a war, the war in Darfur, um, as part of that process of coming together in this new formulation of, of a Sudan or a Northern Sudan after the South secedes, if it, if it indeed does. Um, and it will also have the burden of an incomplete peace. And I, there I refer to the many unfinished uh, matters uh, arising out of the CPA relating to IBA, Southern Kordofan, and Blue Nile. Um, let alone the Eastern Sudan Peace Agreement and its um, shaky states as well. Secondly, there's very clearly a situation of economic crisis which is partially born of what is likely to happen with the oil industry um, and the reverberations of that are already quite clear and you can see that in problems with currency, um, rising prices and the kind of unrest that has been unleashed because of that. And thirdly, there's a crisis of political legitimacy that the National Congress faces. Uh, It to put it mildly, is a regime that will be the midwife of the secession of part of the country, and um, indeed perhaps has much more of a responsibility than mere midwifery in that sense, Um, and also has a leader, as we all know, who's indicted on charges of genocide. So this crisis of political legitimacy is quite strong. Um, There's the additional dimension of the fact that it's a state with quite troubled external relations, both regionally and internationally, globally these um, factors pulled together are very precarious ones within which to be at the moment of nascence of, of a new state. Um, but then I would add to that the ingredient that's just been mentioned um, by, by David, because I think it does um, potentially bear heavily upon the possibility of this idea of a perfect storm within which um, to, to be born as a new state, and that is the Habub, as uh, many of you know, the, the, the sandstorm that's blowing in from the north, which is one of popular revolt, um, mobilization, intifada, as uh, David's mentioned, and, um, and also Ahmed, uh, the Sudanese have prided themselves on being the ones who've shown the rest of the Arab world how to do an intifada well, on two occasions having overthrown an authoritarian military regime. Um, so. I think this element is not to be discounted because given the other con- the contextual elements which I've mentioned already, which we, we knew were there um, over the last couple of years, this additional element um, um, is, is, is something that we yet to see what consequences it will it'll have. Um, for the regime, it faces now this this uh, challenge of how to survive, at what cost, and at whose cost um, in the future dispensation that might arise when the South secedes. And for an array of opposition forces in northern Sudan, um, within this tumult, uh, they sense opportunities, but, uh, as has often been the case, uh, in fierce competition with each other and don't necessarily have a coherent vision or idea of what they would put forward. Um, And it's in that kind of context that I want to frame my presentation in two halves. Um, first with some abstract reflections on the Sudanese state, which I hope will help to uh, shed light upon the second, which is some of an analysis or a brief overview of some of the more contemporary dynamics going on in terms of politics and conflict in the North. Um, so let me start with uh, that first um, uh, thought or half on on ideas of the Sudanese state. i put forward the idea that um, taking the long view Sudan is and continues to be in a process of state formation. And it it sounds very abstract, but it's quite important to think of what that means. It may be uneven, it may be rupturing, it may be violent, it may be contested, but it's formative. It's only when you take the short view that you think of words such as fragility or failure or fragmentation. Um, These judgments derive from a view of the problematics of Sudan as they they are seen within a a close present. And there's a danger of underplaying some of the deeper currents going on. Because state formation or nation-state formation processes invariably include overreach in terms of what can and will endure. So the limits and boundaries of of what form takes obtain from processes that are political and contested. And this has been always the case through history. The South would appear then finally to be definitive evidence of some element and level of overreach. Materially, there was overreach in the projection of coercive power within the Sudanese state as it was since independence. And um, also the state authority kind, there's been no monopoly over violence throughout Sudan's post-independence history, rather a healthy trade in it. But nor has there been full citizen consent to be ruled by the state according um, to the terms that it has set. And and thus there's also this crisis of legitimate authority that has been going on. So this links closely to the overreach in terms of of the nation-state visions that have been uh, put forward by different elites, political actors in the country. And in the most contemporary period, of course, that was a a confrontation between uh, visions of an Islamist kind and one framed by the SPLM as a new Sudan kind of vision of a plural, secular, federal um, Sudan. Now, both of those visions, in effect, have have overreached. They were not able to achieve the the visions of an entirety of the country and the territory and the population. And the point worth underlining is that Um, The story does not and cannot end here, if you think of it in terms of these longer-term formative processes. Similar challenges plague the two new Sudans that are likely to emerge, and assuming the South's secession, both of which uh, by default will have trappings of sovereignty but remain in the throes of these sorts of formative processes. Um, In some respects, and I say this with caution, in some respects only, the South in in, in a sense is better placed um, because the long process of liberation has been deeply formative of some of these elements of of nation-state formation, whereas where where identity, at least at that moment of liberation, whether it may uh, continue to be seen so is is still to be determined, is at least whole, whereas in the North um, it's invariably wrestling with a gaping wound. And I think that's going to be quite um, challenging in terms of rewriting re, uh, uh, an idea of the nation, and an idea of the state and what it is. Um, so what do I mean about these trappings of sovereignty? I think um, Sudan is exemplary of many post-colonial states um, that have been developing from foundations of what has been termed empirical sovereignty or quasi or negative statehood. and that, By that we mean like externally recognised sovereignty without necessarily a sufficient amount of domestic sovereignty, um, legitimacy derived from the citizenry and its, and its consent to authority. Um, and and again, I think it is worth putting then Sudan in that historical context where external factors fundamentally had a, a huge role in shaping what Sudan was, um, both from the Turco-Egyptian time and the British um, overruled during the colonial period. The extent of what the Sudanese state was was determined by geopolitical, strategic and other factors of external actors. Um, and at independence, in, indeed, um, it was very much... Negotiations around Egypt's relationship with Sudan that had a significant role to play in the particular kind of state that emerged at independence with the South within it on the terms that it was. Um, so, in a sense, Sudan has thereafter existed since, post, uh, since independence um, as a state recognized within a community of states, uh, yet was always troubled by civil wars, intifadas, constitutional crises, and deeply conflictual politics. Um, all within a history of forming and constituting its internal identity and building the state out of this kind of um, this, this, these ingredients. In a sense, then, the subsequent politics of state survival, the regimes that have been in control of the state, has been in what Christopher Clapham aptly has termed. Uh, seamanship mattering more than navigation, the, the challenge is just to stay afloat for there any regime that's in control of the state. And, and the, the, the internal process of actually setting forward a vision for the state has been once fractured um, continually under processes of upheaval. And most of the attention has been paid on negotiating external relations to maintain that sort of recognition as a source of deriving internal legitimacy and authority. So that's my abstract sort of uh, tour of why I think it's worth thinking about the Sydney state, not as well what's happening as the south secedes and what's after the north, but put it in that historical context and see that this is a very continues to be part of a very formative longer term process um, and, and thus what is, um, is continues to be um, very much a process of formation in the north as much as it will be quite clearly in the south. And here I might just briefly quote um, Malik Agar the um, governor of Blue Nile at the moment and uh, a senior figure in the SPLM but from, from quote-unquote the North, a category that does no justice to his um, background and the people with whom he represents. Um, I speak, when I was speaking with him in 2007, so some years before where we are right now, he said to me, should the South separate, then there will be no Sudan. Sudan is not a coherent country. Sudan is distinct regions, ethnicities, geographies and cultures. Look at Darfur, the Nuba, the Beja. Sudan is not a coherent state. It came together because of coincidence. If a part decided to secede, especially the south, first there will be real bloodshed. The government will use force to discipline the remaining region, and the south will, com- will come in. If Abiyer fights, or Blue Nile, or Nuba Mountains, the south will not stay aloof. I know the re- repercussions of secession. And... Obviously as a portent of things to come that's quite alarming but I I, I wanted in a sense to focus on the language in a way and the the very clear understanding, very deeply held understanding of how arbitrary and coincidental and formative the state is and how it still remains highly contested Um, and that this solution that comes out of a particular peace agreement at a particular time for a particular region not representing the whole and the entirety of what is still heavily in the throes of a formative um, process. So let me turn to the second half of my presentation hopefully around the 10 minute mark is, um, and that's on the post, post-Southern independence politics of North Sudan which is what I, I want to focus on. The crises looming in Northern Sudan on the eve of Southern independence are definitely now more in view than they were or should have been in recent years. No one was really talking about Northern Sudan. focus was on recovery and the referendum in the South and on the conflict in Darfur. It just didn't get as much attention as as it had been envisaged in the peace agreement process um, or in the negotiations. um, And it certainly fell behind. And only around the elections did it suddenly arise again by then, both within the country and also in terms of external actors. um, It was, in many senses, too little, too late. And I think much of this can be explained by the blinkered vision of peace that we're all under. We're all thinking of it in terms of this peace agreement and the referendum that created it. Um, I want to just uh, go back a bit before the negotiations of that agreement, and, and quote uh, Francis Deng, who's an eminent um, um, statesman of Sudan and from the ABA, as many of you know, um, speaking at a, a U.S. Institute of Peace uh, policy forum in 1999, and he had this to say about the possibilities of a peace deal between north and south. The implication is that a peace settlement between the government and the South will not necessarily bring peace to the country. Not only will the the Northern opposition parties continue their struggle for power against the NIF regime, but the non-Arabs too will continue to fight either for their own self-determination or for a new Sudan in which Arabism and its associations with Islam will not provide basis for their marginalisation or discrimination. The clear idea is that if there is a deal that is just between North and South, it will not solve these other problems that, um, that persist in Northern Sudan in the, in the peripheral regions of the country as well as in the centre. That idea of concern over an agreement that was structured on this basis um, was completely left behind in the lead-up to the negotiations themselves. And by the time of 2001, another important influential policy forum in Washington that influenced the US administration's policy on the, on the peace agreement, the argument was made um, quite differently. And um, to, to paraphrase from the Centre for Strategic and International Studies... Um, Uh, report, of which um, Francis Deng was actually co-chairing, a singular focus on ending the southern war will not, of course, solve all of Sudan's problems, nor does it imply indifference to critical related concerns, such as the need for democratic governance in the north, including accommodation of marginalised northern groups like the Nuba and the Ingesina from Southern Blue Nile, who now fight alongside the southern armed opposition groups. But only when the war has ended will genuine progress in these areas become possible. So it was expedient to end the war on this basis. This was a way to end the war by striking a deal between North and South. But the justifying logic was that this was the only way forward. It's the only way forward for all of the other problems in their entirety. That's not to say that this was wrong as a a call to make or a decision, but rather that it's full... um, uh, consequences were distorted to suit a particular policy imperative and that was seen obviously very f- in the first case in Darfur um, in terms of the conflict arising during the process of the negotiations um, and as um, Abdul Wahid, the leader of the SLM a major faction of the SLM commented to me um, some years ago the 2002 deal on southern self-determination was not a solution it put the country into a corner that the National Congress wanted the SPLM was strong and they cornered the SPLM into the south for me, Machakos just divided the country, put our country into blocks, north and south, and just made things worse. And so, in a sense, the, the logic of the way the agreement has worked has been to foment and make more magnified, more amplified, some of the problems and distresses facing northern Sudan, because it made more clear what those problems were and made them more clear to um, groups and political elites in, in, in the north. And much of this, I guess, is all quite evident, but it's worth underlying that, as a result, northern Sudan remains in a massive state of flux in this period formation processes are traumatised once more, ideas of the nation have been shaken up, and the nature and shape of governance in the North is very uncertain. The domestic legitimacy of of the ruling elite is severely weakened, as I've already mentioned, and in this sense we now see a reassertion of an Islamist agenda as a way of putting forward a positive idea of of governance of of the ruling um, party that is not just about how it's coping with the crisis of the secession of the South, but this assertion of an Islamist agenda feeds in into this crisis that's um, falling the North in terms of where the nation state is, is going to go. Um, and also external sovereignty is under renegotiation and we hear, witness here normalisation negotiations with the US which are of vital importance to the National Congress at the moment because again going back to this external source of internal legitimacy the peace agreement was that source for a long time. It was what kept the, the National Congress at an important counterparty in, in its external relations. It was a necessary part of, of the process of what was going on. Without that agreement and with the indictment hanging over the head of the president, um, normalisation relations with the US become an important way of actually trying to navigate um, their way through this period. Uh, and there's also, of course, a range of economic consequences that are coming from this uncertainty, which I think Harry will talk about in more detail. So the future of peace in the Sudan region, if that's what we will call it, is not at all about how the north and south will relate to each other in this monolithic halves that are presented. Yet that's the obsession of much policy making around oil deals between north and south and border arrangements between north and south. Um, A deal between Juba and Khartoum is not enough because neither can project the coercive authority nor obtain the consent to rule over their whole territory or population. And I think this is becoming more and more clear. The agreement between North and South was ne- never really touching on a range of these other dynamics and factors at play. So the NGCP's challenge is staying afloat in very choppy seas, and I just want to now raise, um, finally, a few issues that um, I think pull this all together and maybe make it a <coughs> bit more um, empirical for you and uh, easier to, 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 um, to understand in the context of what has come before the first is um, the politics at the centre, Um, there is increased turbulence in a time of crisis in the centre amongst the the, the, the traditional northern opposition parties that are largely cartoon based um, even though they obviously pull their constituencies from across the north and here like, the, we see Hassan al-Tarabi's recent arrest as, as you know, particularly indicative of how turbulent and, 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 uh, and uncertain things are at the centre. Um, after calling for a popular revolution and citing the, the situation in Tunisia, he was swiftly yet again put under house arrest. And um, it's that sort of fear and anxiety in the National Congress which is, is very clear in moments like these. But there's also increasingly strident opposition demands from the other northern opposition forces for what they call an inclusive transitional government, that this can't be a government of Northern Sudan after secession that's just rule under the rule of the NCP. It has to be a broad-based coalition government. Of course, in Darfur, I think it, it's, it's, it's not really commented upon, but I don't think there was ever going to be a deal um, on Darfur in the last year um, Because it's quite clear for the Darfuris that the the closer that the South got to secession, the more likely that there had to be a complete renegotiation of political dispensation at the centre. So whereas the SPLM now has a significant presence in the government of national unity, in the ministries, in the the parliament, um, that presence is likely to be diminished or at least um, that's the expectation of a lot of other groups and thus there's an expanded pie at stake and there was never really going to be a deal while the the future prospects of a larger share were very much on the horizon after the South seceding. So I think we are seeing that now, there's an increase um, in um, violent confrontations, um, there's a lot more jockeying, and there's a recalibration of demands by Darfur opposition groups. Um, and, and this is, is, again, part of this new contestation in the North that is, is I guess, um, made more um, dramatic by what's happening um, um, after the South Session. Um, I have a few more points. Am I doing okay? okay. Um, the third point I want to raise then is what's the final deal, peace deal in southern Kordofan and Blue Nile? Um, this is really important. It's be- important beyond those those regions which um, were very much part of the war between the SPLMA and, and, the, and um, the government in Khartoum. The CPA, the peace agreement, provides a basis for engagement on the kind of federalism and governance on offer in northern Sudan. That's why it's so key. What, what, what the deal is for the southern Kordofan and Blue Nile, how how much autonomy they have, what they have control over, how they relate to the centre, is a blueprint for what is possible in a new uh, dispensation on governance in northern Sudan. And yet, it's very unclear which direction this is going. In South Kordofan, it's still a highly fragmented, highly militarised um, um, situation. Um, there's still cantonments of SPLMA areas that have had very little integration into the rest of the state since the peace agreement. Um, the elections have been delayed until um, April, and they've been delayed and delayed again. There. This is, um, elections that were supposed to happen in 2007 um, very uncertain in that area what's going to happen and presence of other forces like the GEM and um, others in the area have been um, talked about increasingly. In the Blue Nile they move moved forward through the elections in a very weird election result which has sort of turned around radically and, and reinstated the governor Malik Agar um, and, ha- and they're in the process of their popular consultation at the moment which has been very fraught And, and um, but what's interesting is that uh, the the insertion of, the, of, the, of a request for autonomous rule into the popular consultation process itself has been grabbed at with both hands by many uh, people in Blue Nile. And that idea of autonomous rule is a real sign of the level of uh, expectation of very decentralized federalism that exists in the peripheries of the north. If we think of those peripheries and I think of Darfur and Eastern Sudan, there is the very clear possibility of a new alliance building from um, the, these peripheries that... Um, it suggests that the war could uh, take new forms, um, the war in Darfur could take new forms in the period ahead if, if these issues around decentralised governance are not dealt with. Um, we've seen that most recently with eastern Sudan um, elements um, joining with the GEM again, so armed elements joining with the GEM, the, the GEM, um, the justice and equality movement of Khalil Ibrahim, projecting very much a national agenda rather than a Darfurian agenda wherever possible. Um, there's another issue here, which is where are the Nuba and Blue Nile SPLA, so the fighting forces that joined the SPLA from the Nuba and the Blue Nile, which under the peace agreement were um, forced to redeploy south of the border, but in many cases did not um, put down their arms, but also hid their arms. There, there's many who did redeploy south of the border, but after secession would expect to perhaps return north, um, and, and their position is very unclear. Um, which leads to a question generally that arises of what's the SPLM in northern Sudan? It had a strong presence but it's not clear at this stage what the SPLM both in the government of national unity becomes after after secession nor just as a political organisation in the north. Um, the NCP has made clear that there's no place for the SPLM it's really a southern um, opposition force and there's no real place for it in the north um, but that brings into question these new alliances that are possible um, that may be led by the figures like Malik Agar or Abdulaziz al in the in in, the, in southern Cordofa, um, and so just to add to that, of course, we must add the issues um, that relate to the border, which um, Ahmed has part, uh, touched upon. I'm not going to go over them again here. But the point about the border is to realise that when it's viewed when viewed from the border, there are so many issues at stake here for the communities on both sides, as well as the political groups, transhumance, um, movement of populations across the border. Um, issues of land and disputes around land a high level of militarisation the fact that the armed forces of the Sudan armed forces and the SPLA are in positions very close to the border often in in positions of standoff, especially around the oil fields um, and I won't go into the details there but um, it's a very um, tense situation in many places. The oil itself and the disputed control over the oil in particular areas um, and the range of CPA losers in the borders like the Misaria and the Nuba who both feel they're on the wrong side of the peace deal um, in the border areas. Uh, the point here is that to view a deal between Juba and Khartoum as sufficient to sustain a post-secession period, um, situation is, is not enough. As Malik Agar you know, talked about, it's about the fact that local dynamics can draw Juba and Khartoum into conflicts that they might not otherwise want to be in, but they find themselves in for reasons that they can't avoid. And I think that's another tension that lies in the fa- this level of um, instability both in the north and in the south. Um, so in conclusion I guess I don't have many um, and not many conclusions not in the business of foretelling um, the future especially where Sudan is concerned um, but I can't help but expect that the next few years will be extremely volatile in northern Sudan and with heavy consequences not only for the people in northern Sudan but also for the people in the south and also for the region as a whole I'm happy to sort of explore some of this in detail I think it's in a very broad overview but I do want to return to the to the fact that it's, it's very important to look at this from the point of view of the long, the long story of, of Sudan and where it's coming from where it's going in, and how much uncertainty just to the present, because of the uncertainty and contingency of Sudan um, as it 's historically constituted. Next.